Welcome, everybody. This is a very special edition of Church in the Wild. I am excited to have a special guest that I'm actually meeting for the first time today and really excited to do so. Uh, Steve Cuss is both a pastor and now an author of an incredible leadership book called Managing Leadership Anxiety. And when I first read this book, it's striking because it's not only walks in alignment with a lot of the principles and ideas that I've really benefited from as a leader, but he does so in such a practical manner. So uh, I want to welcome Steve Cuss to the podcast. Steve, thank you very much for being here. Thanks, Seth. Great to be on the show. It's really neat to discover there's kind of a fellow systems nut doing some work in this field. It's always fun. Yeah, likewise. Um, Steve, for our listeners out there, could you give them just a little bit of a background on where you're from and, and um, your role in ministry right now? Yeah, so I grew up in Western Australia, um, unchurched kid. My sister and I, I've got an older sister, and she started going to church when I was a teenager, and she became a follower of Jesus, and then she led me to Christ. And so we both come from this really secular heritage. Um, none of my extended family, my parents, none of them are believers today. So it's, it is interesting. I've definitely been for, like I've been transformed by the gospel of Christ and I still definitely am formed by a, an outsider's view. I'm always interested in how to help somebody who doesn't get it, make sense of it. Came over to the United States for theological training when I was called into ministry and kind of fell accidentally into hospital tra uh, trauma chaplaincy. I did trauma and hospice chaplaincy for a year when I was 24 years of age. And that was, to this day, the most formative training of my life. Um, and for some of you listeners, they may know clinical pastoral education. That's what it was. I did four units full time. Okay. Then I went on and got my MDiv and chased family systems because I was introduced to it when I was a chaplain. Uh, the the guy that ran the chaplains for the hospital. He wasn't the CPE program guy, but the guy over all the chaplains, George Dobler, was actually an actual student of Murray Bowen. And for any listeners that know Friedman, Ed Friedman, George and Friedman would go to class together and George had all these Friedman stories that were just unbelievable. So then I, I went and got my grad degree and did a bunch of systems work in graduate school. It's just an MDiv. I'm not a therapist. I'm not even a, don't have a degree in psychology. Mm -hmm but just a real passion in systems and cybernetics and really the nature of chronic anxiety, which, which obviously systems theory is fascinated by, particularly as it relates to leaders. I, I just get fascinated by how do leaders carry chronic anxiety and then how do we name it, notice it and, and move through it. A bunch of years, it's a long story, but um, I was invited to write uh, really what for me had been a class I'd been teaching at that point, I'd only been teaching at six years in my own church and a group came along and invited me to write it into a book. So that's the book. It's really my, my class. And uh, I, I've discovered by accident, I think almost everyone who writes about systems brings some unique contribution. Yeah, that's true. I thought my unique contribution, I didn't think I had a new unique contribution at first. I thought I was just kind of doing a primer, but it turns out, identifying sources of anxiety has, has been a unique thing I've done. And then um, I attempted a theology of anxiety, like how does it actually work as a spiritual force and how can we overcome it with a gospel? So that's, that's kind of my work. And, uh, and like you, I'm a lead pastor, lead pastor in the suburban church in um, the Denver area. Yeah. Really fantastic. Um, I love your background. There's a lot of overlap between you and I in a lot of ways, and um, especially from growing up in the non-church sort of background and always having an ear and a mind that's trying to bend itself toward figuring out how to, how to make this clear to those who are on the outside uh, world, for sure, which is, uh, which is really amazing. Um, 
Steve, one of the pushbacks sometimes that I get before we dive into some of your material, you know, is um, I'm obviously really on board this train of trying to uh, mesh together the world of theology and psychology, um, or at least the, the best of psychology. And some of systems theory really does bleed quite nicely, um, especially into Trinitarian theological thinking yeah. and relational yeah, which, theological thinking. That's your field, right? That's your doctorate. Yeah, working on a doctorate that's trying to do a Trinitarian theology and then understand family systems theory of psychology. Um, yeah. Somehow, where, where the connections kind of meet together. Um, yeah. But I'm curious, because there's a lot of pastors that can be very suspicious when anytime you're trying to use psychological language, you know, in a theological setting or a pastoral setting and so forth. Is this something you've come across? And any thoughts that you have on that? Yeah, I have come across that. The The two biggest objections I get is is that one that you just mentioned is like, look, we should just be um, only working in theology and not integrating psychology. Stick to the, the gospel, the, man, which is yeah, it's an interesting right. phrase, but yes. <laughs> yeah, which, yeah, which of course, you know, I'm, I'm as a system serious, I enjoy being a contrarian. It kind of goes with the trade. I think system theory <laughs> attracts contrarians and people like to stir the pot. But yeah, you know, I just want to say, well, what gospel do you mean? Because yeah. I think I'm profoundly, I've been profoundly transformed by the gospel of Christ. And uh, what I discovered in my journey is one more Bible study and one more prayer session wasn't going to uh, uh, get me closer to Christ. I needed something else. And it really was um, the psychology that helped me. The, the second objection I always hear is once in a while you'll get a leader. It's almost always a man, I'm sorry to say typically type A, and they'll say, well, I'm not an anxious person. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't believe they're anxious. And that's the easier one to object to, because I'll just say, well, you know, if you're married, ask your wife. If you've got kids, ask your kids. But if not, just ask someone who loves you when you're anxious, because they already know, even if you don't know, and they'll tell you. And I think it's because people think anxiety is just like fear and worry. They don't right. realize what it actually is. But psychology, you know, here's what got me really intrigued when, when I started to learn these tools and, and really they became a, I would say, a conduit to the grace of God in a way I'd never experienced before. Um, I think what made me fascinated is, is Jesus of Nazareth, like my Lord and Savior, his, his, he was in the transformation business. That was what he did. He transforms mm -hmm. lives. He, yeah. he has absolutely changed what I want. He's changed my heart. And then good, I appreciate that you said good psychology. Good psychology is, is exactly interested in the same thing. Like mm -hmm. good therapy and good counseling practice is looking for transformation and freedom. So I think it's fascinating to look at what are some of the principles of transformation and freedom in, in counseling theory. But then also, I know you're doing this work too, Seth. Go back to your scripture and you see it. You see these principles lived out like Jesus for example, one of the one of the sources of anxiety I teach about is a mixed message. What what do you do when someone gives you a mixed message? If somebody gives you a mixed message, it's always going to generate anxiety in you. It generates confusion. Well, it turns out it's no accident that Jesus of Nazareth is the maestro at navigating a mixed message. Mm -hmm. When the Pharisees say, you know, here's a coin. Who should we pay our taxes to Caesar? Or when they catch the woman in adultery and they say, the Lord Moses says, what do you say? They're, they're trying to put Jesus in a double bind or a mixed message. And he already knows these principles that we've stumbled across a couple right. of thousand years later. Right. It seems like at some point, 
It seems that a good theology is always trying to take ideas in the abstract and make them put as much flesh and bones on them as possible, right, to actually make them practical to our everyday life. Um, And psychology is trying to do the same thing also. It seems like the goals are very similar to me. And anytime you can find language to describe what it looks like to... um, to, to be a kind of person that uh, is healthy or well and is able to relate well to others um, without, you know, in compassion for them, without being controlled by them. Um, and good psychology, whatever field or, or range it's in, is seemingly just helping to uncover the language and tools to help you walk that path. Um, and you just have to be wise. It seems like it just falls into the category of wisdom. Of, of the language that you embrace and that you adopt, um, and that it seems like the Christian life is always meant to be looking back and forth between the scriptures and then in, and into the world in which we see all kinds of wisdom and ideas and community floating around from, from the sciences and everywhere else, and, and we're always trying to reconcile the two as best we can. It, it seems to be what should be a normative Christian life, uh, although I can get some of the hesitations. Um, have, you, have you ever found... Um, have you ever found a moment where some of your thoughts on the more psychological side of things have actually um, gone down a road that, that was maybe harmful or unhelpful for you or for your church? That's a great question. I, I, I do think if you are exploring truth and looking to get greater depths of freedom in the gospel, you are going to explore broadly and widely, and therefore you're going to come across things that aren't helpful. What, what I find is um, what's not helpful. I guess I would call it pop psychology. So if you yes. take any any tool, I think the problem is because we're largely an impatient culture, we know the tool just enough to be obnoxious and all we're doing is adding it to our false self and we're never actually encountering the transformation of Jesus. I, I was listening to what you were saying about theology and I totally agree. I, I think good theology just makes me want to worship. More. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Um, that's how I know it's good theology. And, 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 and so like uh, probably the lowest hanging fruit example right now would be the Enneagram where there are so many phenomenal people uh, leading us in understanding the Enneagram, but there's also a whole slew of people who have done just enough Enneagram work to be more bolstered in their false self than dying to their false self. True. Uh, I think if, if, uh, if all of these tools, if they lead us to dying to self quicker mm-hmm. and letting the resurrecting power of Christ transform us, I, I think they're generally good tools. That would be my broad. Uh, I, I mean, I just think, I think we get closer to Jesus and we have a more profounder encounter with the actual grace of God when we die rather than try. And I do think, particularly wow, that's a great America, phrase. Yeah. yeah. In American Christianity, as an Aussie, I'll, I'll say this, like, Every culture has its challenges and its benefits with the gospel. America has so many ways that it pro- proclaims the gospel amazingly. One of the challenges is we're very impatient and we really are control freaks in this country. And so I think we, we accept Christ and we, we're scandalized by the grace of Jesus. And then I think we, we say to God, I'll take it from here. Right, right. And uh, all we're doing is we're putting, our, our, we're putting a veneer of the gospel over our false self and so I, I do think these tools really help us actually die to the false self. And that's probably what has been most profound for me, even as a pastor, all the ways that being a pastor 
bolster my false self and and invite me to depend on myself instead of on Jesus. Yeah, that's that's really well said. Of, yeah, yeah, they've helped me die to that for sure. Yeah, I've I've I have to tell people all the time because a lot of I think a lot of people like within church contexts that I come across, you know, your kind of your average Christians, um, I think it's I think it's diminishing from what I've seen, but there's still the perception that theology is something that's done by the professionals, you know, and the thinkers and those that paid by it. And the rest of us were just, no, I'm not a theologian. I'm just a, you know, just a, I'm just a normal guy or whatever. Yeah. Um, and the reality that you and I both know is everybody's a theologian. The only question yeah. is whether you're a good one. Um, yeah, we're all operating out of our belief system. For exactly. Sure. Yeah, you've yeah. got a pretty, pretty robustly wired theological grid of who you think God is, what he's like, what he does, doesn't do, all that kind of stuff. And, and it's either accurate or it's not. Um, and so theology is just trying to get that straightened so that you don't have some image of a God that's not actually true or real. Uh, yeah. It seems like psychology is similar as well. And I, for sure, the whole pop psychology that everyone wants quick fixes to it. And um, I love that the way that you present the idea of the false self and how it can just re reinforce that more and more and not really inspire true change, but almost just a doubling down on all that maybe broken or wrong with you in some ways anyway. Um, and I, I worry about it sometimes, even in the younger generations, because I feel like a little bit of psychology can make you dangerous. Um, oh, man. And, and starting to see that now with just some of the language I've, I've come across uh, with some of our students and the, even the whole mental health conversation, um, where they're just throwing around the, the terms of anxiety and depression and all this. And uh, I, no two people are ever talking about the same thing. I mean, one person just failed a midterm, and so they say they're depressed. Another can't get out of bed in the morning, you know. Um, one is struggling with suicidality, and we're not we're not all talking about you know the exact same thing. Nor are we even approaching coming to a healthy solution to any of it. So um, anyway, as with theology, it seems like psychology needs to be needs to be done well in order before we just outright dismiss it. Yeah, it's it's really difficult because we are, you know, system theory speaks to this, but we are a data obsessed culture. We really do believe that more information is the path to transformation. And uh, and so I've even run into it now that my book's out. People want some kind of summary of it or they want like a three <laughs> steps. Yeah. And um, my three steps take years. <laughs> That's what I would say. <laughs> three steps take years. Yeah. Step yeah. one will take the rest of your life. Step two. Oh, I yeah, mean, I've right. been I've been working these materials twenty something years, and right. I'm still a, a, an apprentice for sure. Yeah, yeah. I I was literally just in a meeting not long ago, and we've been talking through some of these principles of being a non anxious presence and their anxiety. And I, I remember they uh, I was having this meeting, and this person was very getting very upset, obviously very anxious, and he says like, "I just don't get it. It's been weeks. I already know like I already know about you know being a non anxious presence, but like." Can we just move on already? You know, as if like, yep, yep, right. You, you totally get it. So, yep, I've, I learned that, and now I'm ready for the next thing. <laughs> next yeah. step, please. Yep, yeah. awesome. Steve, one of the things out of your book, um, again, I I think every every book on systems theory and so forth does, like, uh, like we were saying earlier uh, before the interview, does have its own unique spin and take that uh, it just kind of comes out of our personalities and our experiences. But I thought you did a really great job of making some really practical applications of sources of anxiety and giving some really helpful language so that people can diagnose it well in their lives. Could you help walk through maybe a couple of common sources of anxiety for people? Yeah, yeah. I, I did two chapters on the sources of anxiety, and it was some of my favorite work because 
some of it comes direct, it's pulling direct language out of systems theory. So if, if a systems theorist reads my book, there'll be some very familiar terms like double binds um, and uh, triangulation, you know. Yep. But uh, what was also fun was just to spend a few years paying attention to the kinds of recurring environments that generate anxiety in my life and doing the same with my team. I'd look around at my staff and my elders and I would just be hyper aware of what are some of the recurring situations that are just guaranteed to generate anxiety. Because, you know, uh, I have a whole chapter on how to really help figure out some of your own unique triggers, like what's unique to you. Like in my case, I'm a chronic people pleaser. Mm-hmm. Um, but someone else might, for example, be a perfectionist and they, they are constantly anxious if they don't get it right the first time. But there are 19 or 20 universal sources of anxiety that every single one of us, if we're in that environment or that situation, uh, will make us anxious. And so the, the easiest one from system theory is probably triangulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are ever in a triangled relationship, you will be anxious. And a triangled relationship is simply any relationship with three people in it that really should only have two people in it. So gossip is always a triangulated relationship. Right. But when you're a, a pastor, it gets really weird. Like uh, early in my ministry, I might have somebody call me and maybe she had done like a Beth Moore study. Uh, and having mentioned Beth Moore, I, I do just need to say, I know she gets a lot of heat. I love Beth Moore yeah. and I love the work she does. So this, I think she's amazing. And I think her Bible studies are amazing. Agreed. But, they have a lot of homework to them. They, they, Beth Moore's classic Bible studies have an hour a day of homework. And maybe this wife would call me and she would say, my husband's just not spiritual enough. I can't get him to do one of these Bible studies. Would you meet with him and try to make him more spiritual? Ah. Something like that. Yep. And they wouldn't quite use that language, but that's what they're trying to get me to do. And that is both a triangulation and it's a paradox. And a paradox is a second source of anxiety. So it's a triangulation because there should only be two people in this relationship. If this wife wants her husband to be more spiritual, which first of all is in fact a fool's errand. Sure. But even so, if that's yes. what she wants. <laughs> that's right. She, she should just tell him. Oh she man, I just smell him. that from a mile away and want nothing yeah. to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, but by invoking the pastor, now she's triangulated the pastor in. Now, depending on how differentiated the pastor is depending on you know the pastor's own wiring the pastor will do one of three things the first thing the pastor will do is call the husband and say the holy spirit prompted me to call you Mm -hmm. which isn't actually true you just bald-faced lied to this guy (laughs) in the name of jesus uh but of course you know you'd be saying well i didn't lie like i do believe the holy spirit prompted this woman you know that that's how some pastors play that game Mm -hmm. The, the second option is actually a good option, and it's to call the husband and say, hey, your wife came in, and she's worried about you, and I'm not. Um, I'm not worried about you at all, mm. but she asked me to call you, and I told her I would, so I'm calling you. And that detriangulates because now everybody has the same knowledge. The way to detriangle a relationship is to share the same information with everybody. No secrets, it, basically, right? No secrets, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that gets tricky when you're in ministry because you are actually paid and sometimes legally required to keep a secret. 
And that's where you have to be careful between confidentiality and triangulation. Um, if, if the secret you're holding affects the well-being of another person, you might actually be being triangled. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways you know you are is if the wife then goes home to the husband and you don't even know she's doing this, you can be triangled or not know it. She can say, she won't say, I was talking to the pastor and here's what I said. What she would say is, the pastor and I were talking and we both think that. Mm-hmm. And now you're triangled in. Now you're being co-opted. Um, now the paradox is a really fun source of anxiety because a paradox is a literal impossible situation. Anytime you're in a paradox, you're going to be anxious or anytime you put someone in a paradox. So a classic paradox, if you're a parent is if you say about your child, it's not that I want them to clean their room. I want them to want to clean their room. (laughs) You've now put them in a paradox. Okay because you cannot make someone want something they don't want. It's just impossible. And so this wife, you know, in the original story, the wife coming to me wanting her husband to be more spiritual, she's putting him in a paradox. Right. Uh, And of course, as we dissect this, this is a real thing that's happened to me several times, but as we dissect it, the idea that the one way to be spiritual is a Beth Moore study is also a fallacy, of course. Mm -hmm. um, That's a double bind. And we could get into that if we wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. These are, I, I am hoping to do a f- full kind of exploration of triangles and so forth, but I'm I'm curious how how do you, you navigate uh, that tension has come up oftentimes, especially with confidentiality, right? So, um, do you have kind of a kind of a specific rule of thumb or way in which you you approach that when you try yeah. not to kind of hold secrets, you know, between yeah. two different parties where you you might feel like you're stuck in between? Yeah. So a couple of things. Uh, if if somebody is sharing a secret about themselves, then it's confidential. It's very it's very straightforward. They okay. are coming and unloading. Something uh, that's really helpful, actually. About their life to me, and I hold that. Uh, in fact, it's interesting because my wife's a therapist, and she obviously is under the same legal. She's under very strict legal confidential guidelines, but she's also the pastor's wife in our church. And frequently, people will think that because they've told me something, that she knows about it. Mm-hmm. Well, because they've told her something that I know about it. And so we've had many times where someone will start telling me something as if I already know. And I have to say to them, I have no idea what you're talking about. And they'll say, Oh, well, I told your wife. Oh, oh yeah. If you told my wife, she's not telling me we are not in the habit of sharing other people's stories. That's just not like when, if you are telling me your story, I just want you to know I'm not in the habit of sharing it. It's your story to tell. And so that would be one rule. Now, if they are telling you something that sometimes involves another person, mm-hmm. you, you just have to have that alarm, that red flag in your head. Number one, the question I ask is, are they venting or are they requiring an intervention? Sometimes people just need to get something off their chest. Mm-hmm. That's venting. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they are requiring an intervention. And I think it is a just the discerning. Sometimes you can ask the person directly, hey, are you just needing someone to listen to you right now? Or are you actually wanting to do something about this? That's often helpful. Um, but if you can feel it when, like most of us have this intuition when it's crossing the line and they're actually recruiting you onto their team against another person. Now that's oh, different. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's different. Um, and so... 
I had a wonderful staff member several years ago. She's not on staff now. I always make these disclaimers because some of my staff listen and my congregation listen to these interviews and I just want them to feel comfortable. But a, a former staff member is not currently on staff. And she came to my office and she's like, I don't know what to do. This, this person came in, let's call her Jane. And Jane said to me, can you keep a secret? And I said, of course, of course I can. And then she said, well, I'm starting a second prayer ministry at the church because the first prayer ministry is no good. <laughs> now, again, she didn't word it that frankly, sure. but that was what she was saying. Yes, that's how and all then, good church programs start, I thought. Like right. you just <laughs> create a 2.0 on top of the 1.0 and never right. tell the just let the 1.0 die a slow, eventual death. <laughs> right. Oh, it's very healthy. And never talk about it. Very healthy. Never I, talk about it. I used, to, I used to work at a church. This is a true story. There were rival um, quilting ministries. Oh, my God. Both of them. You know how sometimes you just think you're a great leader and then you look at the mess in your organization? Yes. I, was, I was having to put out fires between two quilting rival ministries because one ministry quilted for the homeless and one quilted for cancer patients. And oh, my both goodness. Of the other one. It's like, how do we get here? The great anyway, battle of the merciful right there. All, yeah, right. Yeah. So this lady is wanting to start a rival prayer ministry. And that, and, and my staff member knew, oh man, so I, I'm now in a situation I don't know what to do. And she, she came for help. She knew intuitively I'm being co-opted into a team I don't want to join. Mm. Um, and, and what had happened, and the person who came in is obviously very experienced in manipulating. That's why she got the promise of a confidentiality up front. Yeah, that's smart. So, you know, if someone says, hey, can you keep a secret? The answer is always probably. <laughs> like it, it, de it depends on the nature of the secret. Right. If it's you and your story, yes. If it's involving another, the well-being of another person, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. And so th my staff member had to call this lady and say, "Look, I can't keep that secret." And the lady hit the roof. Well, you promised. You gave me your word. You know what kind of Christian? All of that kind of stuff. And my staff member just said, "Look, the secret you asked me to keep." is damaging to somebody I love. Mm -hmm. And so you've got 24 hours to call that person and tell them you spoke to me. And if you don't, I will. Mm -hmm. And, sh and that's what my staff member did a day oh, later wow. called the prayer ministry leader and said, Hey, I just want you to know up front. This person came in to see me. Here's what they said. I told them I wanted nothing to do with it. Wanted you to know, cause I respect you as a person because if she hadn't done that, then the rogue prayer lady would have gone to the prayer leader and said, Hey, I've met with the staff and, we're all yes and that's how you get trying that's right yeah, yeah. um yeah that's re that's really brilliant i think uh i think when a lot of people i think triangles are probably one of the more helpful and practical because everyone has them um yes. everyone could find them in their life quite easily um parents when their marriage isn't going great can easily identify the child that they've used as a you know as a dumping ground for Sorry, all their anxiety spouse. yeah and, yep. and their inner yeah right either they're too close to it or they're just or, or just punitively disciplinary wise, kind of focusing all their energy on them. Yeah. Um, There's a technical term. Is it Jay Haley? I'm, I'm, I'm getting this out of my head. I think Jay Haley calls it a severe triangle. There's actually mm. a, a term for when a, a spouse depends on a child as if they're a spouse. Oh, yeah. 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 Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not good. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's <right>. <laughs> <laughs> it's not great. <laughs> whatever, yeah. whatever it is. And, and there are some healthy triangles. I, I, you know, in all of these cases, there are healthy versions. So, like, you know, a, a husband, wife, and daughter might be in a healthy triangle relationship, but that doesn't mean they're triangulated. That's right. Yeah, that's 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 actually the kind of the pro level understanding of triangles because 
um yeah from trinitarian theology uh like you can go all the way back to early church fathers and they'll actually describe why three is the perfect number of relationship both rooted in the nature of the trinity itself but it's the idea of a, a lover a beloved and someone to share that love with um, which is why even the image of god is both male and female that when it's in union together creates a child and there's there's a yeah. family unit so yeah there is a positive redemptive aspect that when you uh, share intimacy with someone like the the perfection of that love is when you can share that love outwardly when it does some positive good or benefit you know for those around you it's not just a entirely self-absorbed love of two people it can it can spread um, yeah for sure yeah what what murray bowen would say is the triangle is the most stable form of relationship mm. and that is where it's fascinating because he's not to my knowledge any form of follower of jesus um but then he would say that that triangulation the negative side of it is when there's tension between any two people, they have to pull in a third to right. feel more stable. And so just for your listeners, people who are most prone to triangulated relationships are people who are not in the habit of direct communication. They're just not good at saying to somebody, I have a problem with you. So they end up co-opting what I call a phantom mob. That'd be another source of anxiety. This is a big one. Yeah. yeah, they try to generate a phantom mob against you. And it's usually people who don't feel like they have much power. Uh, it's a way they can feel more powerful. And it does, that's, I think that's why uh, church leaders often have phantom mobs built against us is because we do have a lot of power in the church. Mm. And so your average person who's not happy with how things are going just doesn't feel like they can confront you because they, they feel like it's an imbalance of power. What's, what's ironic about it is often the church leader is the one that can't show up fully themselves because they have so much power, their words actually do more damage. You know, it's like you can't, when you're a pastor, you can't fight fair with people in your congregation. They right. can say terrible things to you. You can't say terrible things to them because your words have more power. But that person feels powerless, so they grab a phantom mob to try to get more power against you. It's pretty rough. Yeah. I mean, every, every pastor should probably know this in a staff meeting or congregational meeting when they say, you know, people are saying this, people really don't like this. People think this is, and when they say people like what, it's my automatic response now, which people, you know, could I how have any people? Yeah. How many people could I have a name or, you know, um, and, and even, yeah, even people do it instinctively, do it. even if there is no one else other than them, or maybe one person they casually mention it to doesn't even share their opinion. But just like you're saying, I never really thought about that power imbalance idea and how people are compensating for that. Um, because that's helpful for the leader, not just overreacting against it and shutting them down, but actually leaning in more so to, to hear them out, to hear their heart. Uh, the reason I love systems theory for leaders is it refuses to blame anybody. Yeah. So even as we're going through these sources of anxiety, we're sharing these goofy stories. The people I'm talking about, they're not demons. No. You know, they're good people. They love God. They're trying to do the best they can. They're just unhealthy in some way, just like you and I are unhealthy. Um, so that's right. The phantom mob, you know, once in a while it is co-opted by an insidious person with a insidious sure. plan. Sure. More often, it's because somebody doesn't know what to do with their anxiety. Right, right. Um, and, and maybe doesn't trust that someone would simply listen to them and their opinions because they have weight and value all on their own, regardless of whatever title or organizational power authority they, they even have. 
which is the total Jesus move that a leader would create that environment where someone was empowered to share their thoughts and feelings, even if they didn't have the clout in their organization. Yeah. So I think Colin Powell is a phenomenal leader, the, the, the former head of the chiefs of staff of U.S. military, um, you know, five-star general. He, he intentionally would, he, he says when he's in his full dress uniform, he's quite an intimidating figure. He's a large guy. He's got all these medals from all his military leadership and, and battle. He says anytime he meets with a private, he makes sure to wear a cardigan. Mm. Now, Colin Powell in a cardigan, that's just funny. That but is funny. It's genius too. He's intentionally shrinking his, his perceived power. And it's so weird. I don't, I don't know if you've wrestled with this, Seth, but I feel like an exactly human-sized person. <laughs> but a lot of people at my church do not perceive me that way. And it's so weird. Like I'm, I'm a generally pretty available person. Every Sunday, for example, anyone can come up and talk about anything they want anytime. Last year, our church did a big fundraising campaign and we made a commitment, our key leaders, to visit every of our midweek community groups and just answer any questions they had. And it was great. It was really neat. And it wasn't something we're in the habit of doing as a key staff. Mm-hmm. And I think I got to maybe a dozen groups, something like that. And it was really fun. But the, what, I, what threw me off is I was the overwhelming response to me showing up to a life group as a lead pastor who I just feel like it's Steve. I just right. feel like the human being named Steve. Right is people then would ask not questions about our capital campaign. They wanted to know about me, about the church, about, and they just had, they took the opportunity to ask a whole bunch of questions. It was great. So great that we're now going to do it every year. Oh, wow. Like, let's let's keep doing this. This was fun. But people kept saying to me, they said, it's so nice to have access to you where we can ask you questions. And I'm like, I'm at church every Sunday. I think there's four Sundays a year. I'm gone. There's 48 weeks. They said, yeah, but it's different. You always look so busy. It's, that's for people who really need something. It's, it's power is weird. Power is yeah. like leaders. We have to constantly be aware because we often feel bullied by people in our congregation. And sometimes we are, but sometimes people simply don't know how to approach us because they have a lens through which they see us that is so different than the way we see ourselves. It's so true. One of the stories I tell about when it was actually the day I was set in as the pastor officially and pulling out of the parking lot, there was a, an uh, Indonesian friend of mine um, who right as I was pulling out of the parking lot said, have a nice day, pastor. And it was the first time anyone had called me pastor. And I, um, I was 27 at the time and I was about to laugh at it you know, and kind of make a joke of it or something like that. And it was almost as if the Holy Spirit like caught me right, you know, right as as I was about to laugh because I realized she was giving me honor for this new position and title. And for me to laugh at that response or to make a joke of it um, was to diminish that very role. Like she needed a pastor in her life. That was actually good news to her. Um, And for me to play that down and to not recognize that, no, I'm not, I'm not just Seth anymore in my relationships with these people, I am Pastor Seth. Um, and that's been something to take seriously. I've, I think it's important for anyone in, 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 uh, with leadership to know because I've, I've had to wrestle with this time and time again, the same exact thing as you. Like, when I'm there on Sunday, anybody can come talk to me. The problem is it's the same you know, half dozen, dozen people that usually do. Right, that's um, right. And so I've, I've just had to be, even be intentional, even in my own church, about 
I'm going to hang out in different parts of the room. I'm going to yeah, leave the yeah, service early to catch all the people jumping out, you know, more quickly. Uh, if you're one of those people listening now, now you know my tricks. So, That's <laughs> yeah. why he's in the parking lot once in a while. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And I, it's, it's crazy and that it freaks them out, by the way, have you noticed that? Totally you, freaks them out. They're like, Whoa, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> it totally freaks them. But the responses I get are, are the exact same ones that you're sharing from your small group interaction, Steve, is that people are just thrilled to have an actual personal interaction with me and even more so that they don't have to wait till some sort of crisis comes you know where yeah. they where they feel like then they have to come see me um yeah so anyway that's a that's a really it's a really great approach to take just helping people to even overcome their anxiety and um and not needing to wait for tragedy or to tap into maybe some of the dysfunctional ways they know how to get leadership attention um um, which, yeah. which isn't going to go well, typically. No, that's true. Yeah. You know, so much anxiety is generated by power, um, misuse of it, grabbing for it, whatever. Yeah, right. And so I do think for, for our leaders, understanding the power that you have, particularly if you're a white male and you're opening the Bible every week for people from a pulpit of some kind, um, just be hyper aware of your power. And then where it gets really weird is the way people power up to try to match the perceived power they think you have, mm. which to you as a leader then feels like pretty harsh criticism. That's what I've, because I'm a, you know, I'm a pretty sensitive person. I feel pretty deeply. So I get pretty hurt by criticism mm -hmm. and it had, and I still get hurt by it, but it has helped me to realize, you know, a lot of this is just people trying to match power. They're not actually as angry as they're coming across right now. Right. You know, they, or as you said, the people, the, the phantom mob, there's probably three or five people in that mob. And even in that mob of, let's say there's nine people in that phantom mob, out of those nine, how many of those just listened and nodded while the exactly. ranter ranted? Exactly. Because they don't know what to say. And now the ranter right. is seeing they're listening and nodding and, and co-opting them on the team. I've probably been a part of thousands of phantom mobs myself just because I was politely nodding along. <laughs> right. you know? yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's so helpful to, um, to say. And uh, yeah, it, it's so important to recognize not just because we always per have a perception of ourselves that is different of the one of that how people perceive us. And, yeah. um, and if you're if you are anyone on stage opening a Bible, you have to acknowledge that power. And uh, for sure, culturally, given where you're at, for sure, with the white and the male, uh, as a church that deeply desires to express the diversity of the kingdom, all these things are really, really important. Um, and I would also just offer as a tip for, for younger pastors or ministers or preachers out there, um, this is one of the first things that, uh, that someone really helped me with, is uh, I didn't take my preaching all that seriously. So the kind of jokes that I would tell, illustrations that I would use, um, even some of my language, which is a little bit harsh, um, and I just didn't really think much about it. Um, but I had a, a pastor, an older pastor one time tell me, um, I was in, actually in a preaching class and he said, you know, anytime someone is standing with the Bible before people, it's a sacred and holy thing. And you have to be very careful. You don't bring a hatchet, but a scalpel. Um, and that your words and your presence, your embodiment can easily just be that blunt force, you know, object because people are feeling that. Um, and I'm just not thinking it's a big deal because it's the same way I talk to my buddies when I'm off the stage and so forth. Um, but that it actually matters. It actually matters the way you are cooperating with the spirit to perform almost spiritual surgery in people's life and how you know kindly you're doing that. You know. 
Well, and if, if you're comfortable, Seth, let's use that scalpel metaphor because uh, what I would say in my field is the way you navigated early preaching and the vulnerability that comes with it was through that kind of flippant tone. Yeah. And so that was the evidence that you're carrying anxiety. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, for, for the leaders, when we first started this chat, we're talking about the two big objections. The second objection of people saying, well, I'm, I'm just not really an anxious person. Flippancy is a um, evidence of anxiety. Mansplaining is an evidence of anxiety. Laying on the couch and binging Netflix. It's not just worry and fear. It's always whatever shows up next when you're not getting what you think you need. Mm. So that early preaching to me, almost every preacher I know, I certainly went through it. It's an exercise in getting comfortable being that exposed yes. on a regular basis and all your weirdness shows up. Yep. Man, I used to I used to apologize to people in my early sermons, you know, some some version of um, hey everyone, if you knew the week I'd had, you wouldn't think it was any good either. Like you know, like <laughs> sure. just these crazy uh, and all I was doing is managing the vulnerability of of exactly what that wise old person told you is you're about to get up and do something holy and sacred. Yeah. It's pretty terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I think the most helpful phrase, I can't remember hearing this from anyone other than the Holy spirit one time, but said, you know, you're there to bless people, not impress people. Um, and yeah, now, uh, almost 20 years into preaching the gospel, um, about 18 years from that moment. Uh, yeah, it's a big, it's a big difference. I remember I probably spent 80% of my prep time, for the sermon I delivered in that class was critiqued, just figuring out the funny stuff I was going to say and uh, right. like the really relevant, clever illustrations I was going to use um, and far less of it on any biblical sort of content, you know, or even right. considering or praying about the people I was going to be talking to. Right. It was yeah, very self-focused, you know, all of it anxiety driven, you know, thinking that I, yeah. I needed to have the approval of others in order to be, you know, in order to be okay, in order yeah. to be, you know, um, be able to preach the gospel effectively. Um, and it's a very different, it's just a very different story now. And uh, I, I don't know if my wife, I think my wife would agree with this. I think I'm funnier now than I was then in, in a lot of ways in my speaking, but I, I just, it's something that's much further in the background of my thoughts. Than it, I, I don't plan for it. Um, I'm, I am truly not perfect at it, but wanting to be a blessing to the people that I, I speak. And that, that needs to be the process, even if you're a young leader now. Of, of going down as early as you can and addressing what, yeah. what might be driving you to try to impress people, um, yeah. overly impress people, um, rather than just simply being a blessing to them. So um, really good stuff. Steve, you mentioned something there just kind of off the cuff that I actually think is, I for me, it was the biggest takeaway from your entire book. But you said that one of the um, sources of, or kind of primary sources of anxiety is some, when you believe you need something that you don't. Am I phrasing yeah. that right? Yeah. Yeah. So family systems theory uh, is interested in a subset of anxiety called chronic anxiety. Of course, I'm telling you something you already know. Um, but, but I think it was before we started recording, we were kicking around how broadly people use the word anxiety. Nowadays. Yeah, right. Uh, the only piece of anxiety that I am, I think, qualified at all to talk about is chronic anxiety. So PTSD or generalized anxiety disorder. I believe they're real things and Absolutely. They require real help, but my tools uh, can't carry the weight of them. Chronic anxiety is all based on false belief. And it always shows up after you don't get what you believe you must have to be okay. So if anyone's familiar with some of 
Tim Keller's work on idolatry. That's a really helpful way in where Dr. Keller talks a lot about an idol is a good thing that you make into an ultimate thing. Mm -hmm. I, I must have it thing. Uh, and so leaders have, I don't know, somewhere between eight and 50 um, perceived needs that we believe we must have to be okay. And the more concretely you can name it, the more power the gospel has to help you die to it and be free of it. Mm -hmm. So I used to say, for example, when I first started this work, I'd say, oh, I'm a people pleaser. That's not concrete enough. Um, uh, through some work, I was able to name it more specifically. I have this weird need to obligate myself to a stranger. That's So my people pleasing actually has four or five false needs all wrapped up. And one of them is it's, Weird. So if you, if you go car shopping with me and, and I'm trying to help you buy a car, the, the first salesman I meet, I want to buy from them to please them. It's mm. sick. It's just, yeah, doesn't make any sense. And, and we could go into the why and all the weird reasons that I'm like that. But now that I know that I do that, I can die to it and be free from it. Mm. Uh, as it relates to leading, you know, I used to say, like we were just kicking around early preaching. I used to say, oh, I, I really want people to like my sermons. That's not specific enough. I had to name, um, I believe the lie that every sermon I preached has to be gold standard every time. So, um, so, so something your listeners can do is they can begin to concretely name in a sentence what you believe you need that you don't really need. And, and usually you have to do it to someone else so they can listen and uh, try to make it more specific. So I used to say, Oh, I just believe every sermon had to be great. Now that's not, that's yeah, not enough. Right. Uh, Dr. Kurt Thompson, he's a Christian psychiatrist. He says we name things to tame things. I think that's, that's great. so simple and profound. Just if you name it, you can tame it. Uh, as opposed to the, you know, name it and claim it. No, we want to yeah. name it and die to it. Um, and so once you've named what you need, and again, somewhere between eight and 50 things for most leaders that I've worked with. So I'm constantly on the journey of learning and naming things in my life. And it's pretty humbling to realize, Oh, wow, I've been doing this work 20 years. I just named something new that I didn't know that I was operating under. I saw a few years ago, I started to realize God describes me as a beloved child, as a beloved son, I think of myself as a faithful employee. Mm. I'm putting my opinion over God's. That's pretty arrogant. Yeah. And so it took me a while to name that. It's like, oh, wow, wait a minute. I'm actually, not, my identity is not employee of God. It's beloved son of God in whom he's well pleased. And that, that really shifted things for me. But that was only four, three and a half years ago that I started doing that work on that particular belief. And I, I was really captivated by the idea, what if, I was as kind to myself as God is to me because mm. I tend to have a harsh and a critic. And I started to realize all the ways that I'm putting myself above God, where God is kind Romans eight, one, there's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. But, but I say, Oh, but no, there is for me. I'm going to actually beat myself up over that leadership mistake I made. Right. And and so then I, that's to me where the, that's where all of this conversation we had before about how does the gospel and psychology integrate? This is it for me. Am I going to believe my own self 
or am I going to die to myself so that the resurrecting power of Christ can be alive in me? And which one's the better news? That's usually how yes, you know yes. what's false self and what's what's the gospel is is the better news, oh Steve, you can you should have done you should know better by now. That would be my voice of condemnation. You sh- you've been a lead pastor 14 years, you should know better by now, buddy. Is that the better news or is the better news there's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus? And then once I'm able to name it, my second step is, okay, what behaviors do I do next? When I'm not getting what I think I need, what do I do next? And how does it impact my well-being and the well-being of those around me? So let's take this crazy belief that every sermon has to be gold standard. No matter how good the last sermon was, the next one has to be better every week Mm -hmm. incrementally. That's unsustainable, of course. Like I preached in my early days, I was preaching 45, 50 weeks a year. Now I think I'm doing about 35, 36 weeks a year. I've probably got 20 to 22 good messages in me a year mm. and none of us know which one's going to be like you just that's the nature of it <laughs> sure out of the 36 i'm yep. preaching 22 to 25 maybe are good that's the way it goes yep uh that's truth that's what's true and that's very freeing for me but back when i was really bound by this belief i'd come home and you know what what would i what was the impact on me well i would need some kind of a compliment that was unreal and the compliment I would need would be something like, um, what is this new teaching? I've never heard such phenomenal insight. Who would, right. this young man, you know, some form of sensationalist. If, if I had to exaggerate it, what I needed to hear was Jesus himself could not have constructed such a message <laughs> as we had today. And yes. uh, I needed that every week. But of course, I didn't get it. And uh, the worst weeks, I'll tell you this, what was crazy, Seth, the worst weeks is when I'd preach a really great message and I felt really great about it. Then I'd feel all this pressure Monday morning. Yeah. Oh, man. And instead, like, like you were saying, instead of what's the gospel this week, what's the text demanding, my pressure was, how am I going to top that? Mm-hmm. And then the way it would impact other people, I'd go home and I'd require my wife to artificially tell me it was more amazing instead of what's really good news. The good news of the gospel is my wife has every right to be bored by it, hate it, disagree with it, just like everyone else in my congregation. Yeah. But I was putting all this pressure on her, this person that I love and who loves me very well. I was putting all this crazy pressure on her. Why? Because of, I was acting out of a false self a false gospel. Mm. So that would be like a case study of these false needs. And the more your listeners can start to identify them, the more free we can be. So I'll tell you this. I am now able, this is such good news. I am now able to preach a really bad, boring message and be totally fine. That's the best news I've ever heard, Steve. That's incredible. (laughs) And, And here's what's crazy. And I know some of my congregation are listening to this. The way I did that is I intentionally preached a boring, bad message and didn't tell anybody. Is that, do you did that for real? I did it for real. Several years ago when I uncovered this vow I had in my life, yeah. this is a this is a systems jujitsu move, right? Okay, right. Is you have to bravely practice. And so if my tendency was to apologize for my messages, to tell people, hey, I was exhausted this week, I had a lot of crisis, my message isn't going to be very good, then the only way to get past this in my life was to preach a boring message badly, not tell a soul, and when people said good job, to say thank you. Yeah, and it was so hard to do, yeah. and it broke it for me. 
and uh, now I can preach boring messages and come home. And <laughs> it's, it's great. And my church is so grateful, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, uh, I, I've found great power uh, in just teaching people that phrase, thank you, when they receive compliments. You know? Yeah. Um, just say thank you. Don't explain it away. Don't minimize it. I feel like the Holy Spirit did that jujitsu for me uh, because all the sermons where I got people going out of their way to talk about the impact that it made or the person that got saved or some special ministry moment that happened through it were all moments of both least preparation and moments where I felt the most garbage about it, you know, Crazy. and uh, and the moments where and I felt like, dude, this is a this is a rock star. This is a main stage conference sort of moment sermon and just crickets. You know? So, yeah, I've had that beat into me like quite severely by the spirit over the years. It feels it's, like anyway. I'm so glad because who I would be without dying to that would be an unlovable oh, human being. No question. Yeah, no yeah. question. I, re- I really appreciate that. Uh, Steve, this is actually super helpful and practical. Um, all these source of anxiety and for anyone just being able to, I love that idea, name it to tame it. So anyone that's able to name, what is it that you think you need that you actually don't? Where is your life not okay believing if you just had this one thing or maybe if this other person would just change? Um, then everything would be right. And then actually being able to articulate that in such a way so that you can you can juxtapose it against the gospel to see, um, do I actually need uh, my child to be more respectful to me in order to be okay? Uh, That's right. Do I need my spouse to pay more attention to me in order to be okay? Do I need the promotion at work in order to be okay? Um, do uh, And whatever you think, do I need to lose the 10 pounds in order to be okay? Um, really yeah, like, do I need to have the last word. Do, do I need to shrink someone else's pain down to a size I can manage so I can give them pithy advice? Yeah. Do I, do I need to rush in and relieve that person of their anxiety because I don't know how to be calm when someone else is anxious in the room? Yeah. Or, all of that, all of that. Um, and if you, if you really can name it and then see the good news, here's where, here's the best part of it. Cause if all in my mind, if all you have is psychology alone, you can name it. And then it's just like, well, turning on the lights to see the monster in the room, but it doesn't deal with the monster in the room, right? You still got to live with it. So, um, but you can actually come to the gospel and actually see the better news uh, that you don't have to live with that monster anymore. And, uh, and Jesus has actually overcome it. If, if you would trust it, oh, die man. to self and, and uh, take on his easy yoke. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not highly versed in world religions but i think i've got a pretty good working knowledge we at our church my wife and i run a seeker group where people ask any question of anything and so we've done a lot of study in world religions and and to me this is the difference between every other world religion and the gospel of christ is like take buddhism like you take your buddhist monks who really do reach nirvana through self-denial it sounds very similar to what we're talking about yeah but there's no worship at the end of it. And that's how I know I'm free is when I'm, I'm craving the worship of the King. Uh, it's really funny. I, I love the Marvel movies. Um, I think Marvel just did this incredible job of 22 really great movies. Yeah. And in the Avengers, the original Avengers, when Loki shows up and I think he's even in Germany gouging out some dude's eyes so yep. he can use the eye. He, he has the crowd, and he's, he's telling them what's true, that they are all made to be subjugated. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching yes. that like, oh, man, I hate yeah. this thing because Loki's actually saying something I believe is true. I think the human heart was designed to worship something greater than us, just not Loki, of course. 
But even yeah, like, you not look Loki. At, <laughs> yeah, not so much Loki. But you look at Hinduism and, and the Islam religion, and I think another way we know we're free is when we can rest in the grace of Christ. Yeah. Like my sermon was really bad, but the grace of Jesus is enough and people are going to come back. Um, and, and as you said, God speaks through me in spite of me. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes people will come up and thank me for saying something I literally never said. Yeah. And I know the Holy spirit yep. was saying something to them Yep. and I can't take credit. And uh, so so that to me is the other beauty of the gospel of Christ is, is um, this, this death to false self opens you up to such a profound encounter of grace. And my experience with, with most church leaders is we are, uh, we're, at a, we're at a deficit of grace. We're good at talking about it. We're not good at experiencing it for ourselves. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I, I find this to be, to me, Steve, this one of the reasons this is um, a why I knew this would be great, but b why this has been so great is that to me this is the bedrock conversation of not just leadership, um, but really the gospel and Christianity. And what I'm really thankful for, this isn't just a discussion of techniques and uh, you know ways that uh, the three tips of how to improve your life or ministry, but this is really weighing and considering the good news of Jesus and how to actually enjoy his presence and uh and become more like his presence um yeah and deal with this uh this this great you know thing that we carry around with us all the time um that we can label as anxiety but it's just this source of false belief uh and a god that is not nearly as kind or doesn't love you nearly as much as jesus does um, so this is just really helpful. I'm hope I'm hoping, Steve, that people are hearing this and being able to identify or do some work, at least to begin to identify some of the sources of anxiety in their in their life, and hopefully find a place where they can turn to, to Jesus. Um, is there anything that uh, you would say, Steve? Just kind of final thoughts, final remarks, and just um, where people can can go next if they're if they're wanting to go deeper along the trail that you're that you're laying out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so I would say there's actually lots of great books in this vein. Um, my book is an attempt to be like a reference so that I can, so you can get concepts and tools and then try them on. And I'll endorse so, yeah. it. It's great. Go, go read Managing yeah, I, Leadership Anxiety. Yeah, it was great. really fun to write. And, and there are also in this field, a lot of great resources. I think the most powerful thing is to bravely practice. And so what that looks like is whether you read my book, whether you read another systems theory book on leadership, does, almost doesn't matter. But who are your group of three to five people that you can gather with on a regular basis? And by regular, I think it's at least once a month. Uh, in our church, we, we meet twice a month uh, for two hours um, and try these concepts on and do what you and I were just doing. We were just modeling on the podcast is sharing stories, naming beliefs, that, that's the only way I know to transform. I, I was talking to a dear friend uh, a couple of months ago, my wife and I, and, and this other couple were having brunch. And they, they are in a tradition that does this kind of work as well, different from what I've built. And the lady was saying, she's like, yeah, I, I went through the material, the 101, and then I became a coach and things were really help, you know, kind of coming together in my life. And then I got busy and I stopped and now I'm all anxious again. And what she was communicating is you, you never graduate from this material, yeah. you have to constantly bravely practice. And so to me, that means you have a, a band of brothers and sisters that you trust 
and that like if if you kick around say a double bind or a triangulated relationship or differentiation any of these concepts you have to have time to talk about it and then where it really gets brave is you have to dedicate between meetings to intentionally put yourself in situations that make you anxious and see what happens mm. that's the brave practice so that's why i preach the boring sermon for yep. example yep I can talk about it all day long, but until I get up and actually stand in front of hundreds of people and do a bad job intentionally, it's not going to break me free. Uh, that's the brave practice. That's what I would say to people is if, if maybe this podcast and Seth's work is kind of a first dip into your exposure, your best move is to find some kind of small group and try this stuff on. That's great. Steve Cuss, this has been extraordinarily fun for me. I know it's going to be really helpful for, for the audience listening. Thank you so much. You can find uh, Steve's book all over Amazon and the usual places. But thank you so much for your time, Steve. I really appreciate you being here. Oh, you bet. Yep, really fun to be with you.